This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, Julia Furlan here. I'm sitting in for Sam Sanders this week. Just a note before we start the episode that we do discuss suicide quite a bit in this one. I wanted you to know that. Okay, here's the episode. In 2012, Michelle Carter and Conrad Roy fell in love. They lived about an hour away from each other in Massachusetts. They didn't see each other a lot in person, but they exchanged thousands of text messages over two years. That's the setup for the new documentary from filmmaker Aaron Lee Carr, which premiered on HBO this month. It's called I Love You, Now Die. The trial of a Plainville woman accused of encouraging her friend to kill himself through text messages is now underway. Michelle Carter is on trial for manslaughter to decide if text messages she sent crossed a legal line and whether she should be held responsible for her boyfriend's decision to take his own life. The documentary is split into two parts. In the first, Aaron Lee Carr unfolds the dramatic story of how Michelle encouraged Conrad to kill himself, and later the dramatic decision in court. We state your full name and age. Michelle Diana Carter, about 20. To waive her right to a jury trial. Are you doing that of your own free will, knowingly and voluntarily? Yes. All right. Thank you very much. You may step down. Thank you. Then, in the second part, Erin flips the script. She lays out a story that raises a lot of questions about whether Michelle, who was ultimately convicted of involuntary manslaughter and sentenced to 15 months in jail, was fully to blame. Michelle was uh, on psychiatric drugs, too. And so we have these two kids. They're not star-crossed. They're drug-crossed. Both parts of I Love You Now Die are available on HBO platforms. Go watch them. And as we'll discuss, there are similar dark themes in Aaron's other HBO documentaries. There's one called At the Heart of Gold, Inside the USA Gymnastics Scandal, Mommy Dead and Dearest. There's also one called Thought Crimes, The Case of the Cannibal Cop. And Aaron is also the author of a memoir called All That You Leave Behind that came out earlier this year. It's about sobriety. It's about her career and also about her father, former New York Times journalist and beloved media critic David Carr, who died in 2015. Here is me with Aaron Lee Carr here in New York. Um, what a huge undertaking. That must have been a two-part documentary. It's so much time. How does it feel to have this work out in the world? It feels pretty crazy. You know, I was fired from Vox in 2013, and I set about a career making freelance documentary films. And <laughs> As did, one does I at age 25. That it was going to go so well. So it's just, it's kind of wild to behold. It feels surreal when I like, when people are asking me questions about it. It's just like, <laughs> when I think about suicide, when I think about these two people, I mean, it, it feels like a case that's so close to my heart, but it's also, uh, it's also a documentary. What do you mean when you say it's close to your heart? So it was the project that by far took the longest out of any of my projects. It sat in my brain the longest. Uh, I lived in Massachusetts when I was 
like going to the trial every day. HBO was the pool camera inside. I asked everybody 10 million times to talk to me. I'm pretty <laughs> sure I got a lung disease from this Airbnb I was staying in. Oh, no. Uh, you know, it just was like... It's so fun to make a documentary because you're working with your friends and people you really like. But then you are talking. Yeah, but you're talking about somebody who's dead. Yeah. There's this line in in the film. Both families want a version of this story where it's not their fault. How did you manage that? How did you sort of like hold that as you were making the film? When we thought about making this film about Michelle Carter, we really wanted to show the prosecution side the evidence, the evidence that makes her look as guilty as possible. Mm -hmm. And then in the second episode, we subvert it and show you all the evidence that makes her seem not capable of this crime through mental health deficit or through like the lack of evidence. And so it was, you know, it was a fairly specialized and targeted thought process. Right. Can you speak to that a little bit? The the two part format, which I thought was such a powerful way to take something in because you really sit with both sides. Why don't you speak to what you were doing with the audience there? Sure. So Michelle Carter's defense team opted for a bench trial, which means uh, a judge was going to determine her fate. And it was a fairly calculated decision on behalf of her defense attorney, Cataldo, because he knew that the court of public opinion really hated Michelle. And so right. he was like, you know, I really need a judge to decide this. And so, but I I find that I really wish she had had a jury. I think that a lot more evidence would have come to light. And so as I gathered and started making this series, it was like, well, let's split it. Let's split it like they do in a courtroom. And so at the end, you have to wrestle with this. And like the when, when jurors go, they're thinking about what the defense attorneys just said. Right. I mean, it's reasonable doubt. Does this person belong in prison thinking every day, every hour, every minute about what they did? I think it's a really brave way to put your audience there and be like, I don't know. What do you guys think? I want to make people as intellectually nervous as possible. My raison d'etre. Yes. Um, There's a thread in I Love You Now Die that focuses on how Michelle Carter was portrayed by the media. And it is a really interesting move, I thought, because I don't know that every filmmaker would have pulled that strand Can you speak to that sort of how Michelle Carter's portrayal affected the case and how the media affected it? So when you mention the words Michelle Carter, people say, the chick with the eyebrows? Mm. There is just this insane photographic memory and identity that we have about Michelle Carter. And as a female journalist and a documentary filmmaker, I was like, okay, well, what is this? Do we, are there 15,000 articles about this guy perpetrator's face? Like, what are we doing there? Are we, do we dislike her or hate her? Um, You know, it, it just led to that, like, Michelle is sort of this cipher and we want to get to know her better. And, and that, and documentary is a great way to do that. It was also so clear that people really wanted this, like, beautiful monster narrative, you know, because it's like you see her face and she's, you know, privileged, white, attractive, young, um, you know, well-dressed, well-made. Always wearing heels, definitely putting on a show is what people really thought about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you spend two minutes inside the courtroom 
Uh, Michelle was friendless. She was uh, in a psychiatric hospital prior to Conrad killing himself. She was with bulimia, with cutting. She would say things like, I know what it's like to be a battery because I'm rarely included in things either. Like she just, yeah, yeah like it's right. just yeah. some, some, some sad stuff, man. And yeah. so like, I don't know, like I'm not blaming the news media. You know, I think that there was a lot of like morning and evening talk show relegated to this story. I think it has added to the recognition of that this is an important case. But yeah, like part of me was really upset about how much of it centered around her looks. Yeah. I mean, the the way that the documentary unfolds is sort of that like there's a third act that you reach and it becomes clear that both of these teens were suffering in ways that were in some ways invisible to to the people in their lives. Can you speak a little bit to to that and and how you treated it in the documentary and why you treated it the way you did? Yeah, I think that there were so many missed opportunities for both of them. They so struggled with mental health issues. And they didn't especially look like people who were struggling. Conrad Roy was somebody who got his captain's license. He was cute. He was nice. He was friendly. He was quiet. He was introverted. Yes, he had tried to commit suicide before, but he promised his mother that he was never going to try it again. Michelle got good grades, was respectful to adults, um, you know, had some social life, was connected to her family. So I think that what it sort of illuminated for me is you do not know what's underneath the surface. And yes, anybody listening to this to be like, well, I'm not saying the things Michelle Carter was saying. Right. We all have those thoughts. Like dark thoughts. We all have darkness within us. Absolutely. There's a little bit of evil in everyone. Yeah, absolutely. A lot in me and you. I mean, clearly. I feel like that is a really good way to talk about your larger career in general in terms of the things that interest you as a documentary filmmaker all of the subjects that you take on have a very strong evil factor. And um, can you tell me why you like evil things? (laughs) I think it was really about how I was raised, that we are not equal to our best or worst action. I mean, my father is a former incredible journalist in the New York Times. He also happened to suffer from crack addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that, you know, in my growing up, I saw people containing multitudes and it didn't stop at my father. Uh, And so, you know, when when I think about taking a subject on, it's really about like, what is the complication here? What are the, like the layers of the onion that I wanna unpack? And like, you know, I, I'm not interested in showcasing violence against women for titillation. I absolutely will not do that. I'm also a little frustrated with myself that I continue to make things about white people. I think that that's something that I'm really trying to challenge myself on. Uh, criminal justice does not affect white people in the way that it affects men and women of color. Yeah. Um, and so in the way that I'm so outspoken about feminism, it's because I'm a white woman. And like that's an easy place for me to hold strong. Right. What does it mean to, to make things about uh, people of color? And so mm-hmm. I, I give myself an A minus on feminism and I have a lot of work to do in the sort of the intersectional space. What about that? bothers you like are you is that something that you're trying to uh take on in the next part of of your career maybe is that something that you're trying to interrogate in in your work yeah like i i have there's a film that i love that is based on young black girlhood and i saw that the filmmakers were white Mm. and i kind of had this weird reaction to it and i was just like 
what's going on here? Why can't a black filmmaker do that? Like, it feels a little bit uh, weird for white filmmakers to be discussing black girlhood in that way. Yeah. And, you know, so I'm just, I'm trying, as I, you know, look for more stories, and I always want to be looking to grow as a filmmaker and as a journalist, the concept of, like, you know, picking stories about white people um, it's it's an interesting one. And I'm sort of like, you know, the other day I posted something about sort of I'm so lucky I got a shot at 25 and, um, you know, that film film festivals are finally recognizing female directors. And a uh, black filmmaker reached out to me and was like, hey, FYI, the people that are getting included are white women. Yeah. And what do you have to say about that? And what did you say? <laughs> I was like, oh, God. I was like, you know, uh, what do you think I can do to be more inclusive? Like, how do we go from here? Yeah. Thank you for, uh, for you know, reaching out and telling yeah. me this stuff. And, and But it, it felt like this, like, I was taking it in, but, like, how do we do things about it? I mean, it typically, for me, it means hiring people of color. It, is it ever something that you struggle with in the, like, boardrooms that you're in, in the pitch rooms? Like, where you're, like, somebody's like, well, you know, this isn't going to have the implications or this isn't. This isn't enough for us. Yes. I pitched uh, a Houdini murder in Louisiana to a network. And uh, somebody said, you know, we already have a black story. Yeah. And I said, well, this <laughs> is a different black story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, I'm really interested in uh, being a part of a movement that discusses police brutality and, you know, in unconscious bias as it relates to men and women of color. Uh, you know, it, it's it's all about sort of like... I plan things in five-year increments. What are the things that I want to cover and be a part of and hopefully be uh, a force for good? Time for a break. When we come back, we'll talk about Aaron's father, David, and the lessons that he taught her. That's right after this. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment at your convenience. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com minute to learn more. Now, I hope and expect this to be the only time that I will speak to you in this manner. I would not provide information beyond that which is already public in any appearance before Congress. Special Counsel Robert Mueller isn't getting his wish. He's set to testify about his investigation into Russian interference and possible obstruction of justice by President Trump. Afterwards, the NPR Politics Podcast is going to be there to break down everything you need to know about what he says. Your dad, uh, who is in many ways like a huge legacy that you carry, David Carr, in your memoir that you released, All That You Leave Behind, you describe him as this like, you know, he's got his headset on, he's smoking, he's got his laptop, he's like wandering around. He doesn't have a desk, but he's like constantly frenetically working. Um, It seems like that might be part of you too. Yeah. One of the quotes I have hung up in my apartment is, there, this is, was an email to me, and I think I know the words. There is struggle now, and you know what? There will always be struggle. As soon as you figure out the job or the case, there will be another. The reward for achievement is a blessing that lives inside a curse. Oof. In an email. <laughs> so in terms of, like, workaholism, one, it was how I was 
socialized and trained. It's what I was modeled. Uh, my father was consistently working. He worked six to seven days a week. My stepmom was the same way. Mm. My twin sister is brilliant. She's finishing up her PhD. She had a high level of intelligence that I medium to low level match. <laughs> um, I was always really afraid of being some dude's kid. Uh-huh. And I think that the further away I get from having one film under my belt and now I have five, it's like no one keeps no one's gonna keep giving you work if you suck. Right. So it's just I know that there's a more eloquent way to put that, but no. I think that I was so intensely, you know, moving and working towards this because I didn't want it to end. And I think that it, it has had personal um, it, it is It is not been the smartest path. I mean, I get to sit here and talk to you, and it's exciting, and I, I love having a film out, and I released a book this year, and I released another gymnastics movie. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's been a big, big year for you. <laughs> but it's you. like, you know, you don't you're, – you're never free for your friends. I have health problems now. <laughs> you know, I've lost a very cute boyfriend. Oh. Uh, I'm not going to sit like the tiniest violin for the busiest documentarian in town. But. I don't know. I feel like there's I, – I think that it's important, especially for women in high-achieving places, to talk about the sort of like what like what's on the other side of the scale. I think that the like the people that bear the brunt of it is my family because – when death happens and my dad died in 2015, families either grow together or they sort of splinter. And okay. so I have this like baked in excuse system for why I'm not going to go to your Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, God, I have a court. I have a trial, you know, da, da, da. I'm, I'm developing a pitch. I have to get this done. And I think that like when I get old and if and when I get old, um, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be like, I wish I worked more. Mm-hmm. Like, I wish I hang out with my baby sister more. She's epic and cool. Yeah. And so this is serving as a reminder, like, do the work, but show up for people. That's what my dad did. He right. did the work, but he showed up for the people that was important. And I'm still in the process of figuring that of out. Of trying to balance it all. I mean, I feel like there are a lot of moments in the book where – being a car, like being of this legacy is something that you're really grappling with and and sort of, I don't know, there's a lot of destiny in this book is, is what I felt when I was reading it. I am full of destiny. That's a perfect word for it. I mean, I am a, a former crack baby whose films get written about in the New York Times. I mean, that doesn't happen very much. And that's because I was consistently challenged, loved, but also this is what I what I love about that book is positive reinforcement. Even if I was a little dumb idiot, like he was said, you are smart, you are beautiful, you have something to say. How rarely do the people in our lives give such vivid descriptions about why they love us? And so I think that um, like reading that story back now, like kind of feels like a different girl. It's so full of self-doubt and sort of uh, criticism. And my dad was very critical of me. Yeah, I was going to say, um, he's, he's not just a sweetie sugar. No. <laughs> he, no, his expectations were insane. Like I remember there's this like very infamous um, birthday email that the, the book starts off with. And he basically says that, like, I, I expect you to change the world. Mm-hmm. I remember oh. reading it to my therapist, and I was just like, isn't this email beautiful? And she was like, <laughs> this is shocking stuff. Wow. This is, like, what the expectations of this. How do you manage those expectations? Like, not only are you supposed to, like, learn and figure out your job, but, like, he wants you to change the world. And I was like, oh, I didn't really realize that. Yeah. 
I thought everybody's dad was like that, you know? I hope they are. I hope everybody's mom, everybody's sibling, like, let's take a, a message from this and tell everybody, like, you rock because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. I mean, is is it ever hard to carry the the advice that your dad left for you? And, like, is it in your head? When he was alive and I was making things, my ex-boyfriend Jasper said, you call him so much how do you even know what your own opinion is? Like, why don't you why don't you check in with your? And he said it in this, I think, this very gentle way. He was a, he is a really gentle person. And now that my father is dead, and I've made the majority of my work without him, yeah, I've had to trust solely my own voice, and it's been scary. But like, honestly, like. The work has gotten better. And that's not to say that, it, like, because he's dead, my work has gotten better because I, like, you know, it's all about me. No, but no, it really, like, yeah. it was about I I have all of this innate knowledge and wisdom that he provided with me. And I, I carry it every day. I mean, I think I think about my father, I don't know, all the time. Like, it's, <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, I don't yeah. know what the deal is with that. I think it's how I think it's fine. He's so great that, like, and complicated. And that's what I love about the, the book is – um, it's not just a love letter. No, no. There's a lot of darkness in there. There's this one moment I wanted to bring up from the book where you talk about being in the car with your dad and he's just driving like way, way, way too fast. And you're aware of that and you get angry with him and you tell him like, dude, that's not OK. It was too fast. And he doesn't really apologize for it. The entire story struck me because it's not a particularly redemptive one, you know? So something about my dad that has been hard for me to grapple with is why on earth did that guy smoke 48 cigarettes a day? Mm-hmm. Um, why did he spend money in the way that he spent money? Why did he um, – why was there no thought process designated towards retirement or that he was going to be an old guy someday? And like – uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I hear some of the hostility and resentment in my voice. Like, he was so much about the here and now and being the best journalist he could and a great father that there was no room to ever sort of think about or move towards the future. Um, yeah, I find that I find that troubling and not something I would like to uh, continue with my life. Time for one more break. In a moment, we'll talk about Erin's sobriety and her father's own struggle with addiction. Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from the BBC with Where to Be a Woman. Join hosts Sachi Cole and Sophia Smith-Gaylor to find out where in the world women can live their best lives. Search for Where to Be a Woman from BBC Podcasts. Bitcoin needs a huge amount of electricity to power its computers. And that has created some very unique money-making opportunities in different parts of the world. It is also causing some government's concern. Listen and subscribe to The Indicator from NPR. There were these moments career-wise that I thought he did like a similar sort of dance that I 
I don't know. I feel like only a journalist would be this like weirdly perverse about stuff. Like when you were doing the Cannibal Cop uh, documentary and you were invited to a very intimate gathering of, of people that was the defense team. It was the the suspect's uh, family and, and you. And you ask your dad for advice and he's like, yeah, go. Just don't don't go by yourself. And I I just from it felt like his foot was on the gas instead of the brake in that moment. You know what I mean? Well said. <laughs> I mean, he 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 saw that as a path to success. Yeah. It was almost like he protected me when it came to everybody else, but he didn't have that same level of insight if he was ever not protecting me. Like, example right. that is really painful that I don't really, like, want to go deeper into is, like, he drunk drove with us in the car. Right. Like, I talk about him being a great dad and, like definition of uh, not that behavior so but that to me says a lot about addiction uh, right. all his whole life was about being there for his kids but when alcohol came into the equation there was there was no pulling him back yeah I mean let's talk about your sobriety you've been sober since 2015 wait let me say since August 23rd 2015 which is huge and I just yeah congrats on your sobriety um yeah I really love this tweet where you said, I love being sober and waking up at 8 a.m. after a July 4th holiday. I don't have to worry for one minute about what I said or did last night. If you have a problem, just know that if you stop, life can get really, really good. I want to know, what is it that you hold close when you're struggling? I think that when you get a couple years of sobriety under your belt and you're at Tribeca, you're at South by Southwest, and everybody in that room, for the most part, gets to have some champagne. You're celebrating something. It's time to toast something. Right. And you're the dork with the seltzer. Mm-hmm. And that has been – I know that that's like – it's a weird thing to bring up in terms of a struggle. But like the social liquidity that alcohol provides um, – oh, yeah, dating again. Dating, yeah. Like being like, I'm going to have a Sprite. And you're yeah. like, what do you mean a Sprite? I'm like, I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. They're like that doesn't – you know, I, I could never, I could never go on dates with people who, who ever had alcohol in their profile picture. Mm-hmm. Like I had to be really targeted. I have to go to um, sobriety meetings. I have to be really careful. You never can be hungry, lonely, angry, tired. Mm-hmm. Um, in AA, they tell you that if you put work before your sobriety, you will drink again. I'm a workaholic. What does that have to do? So I think, you know, as I move towards four years, knock on wood, that I'll be getting in August, which is a month away, like. It's some of it is really easy, but the the harshness, the really like for me, it was always the mornings after, right? Like just like I could not breathe, or I had alcohol poisoning, or like I just I like laying on the bathroom floor of a bathroom where I had roommates. Like those mornings are further and further away from me, and so I forget what they feel like, and I think, oh, maybe I can, maybe I can drink again, right. and that's what happened to my dad. Yeah. You just you was, go to enough parties and you're like, what? like I mean, he was sober for 14 years. He was yeah, he was sober for 14 years and then he had a had a relapse. I mean, society is built to enable drinking culture, right. and I think even though even for people who do not have alcoholism, like I hope people don't. It's horrible disease. Being sober is being present, and you're able to really think about things and believe in things. And like when you ask me about um, being prolific or like doing a lot of work. It's not because I'm a lot smarter than anyone else. Like, it really is because, like, I have a lot more time. 
And because I am constantly present and I I do sleep a ton. Like I do not donate any more hours in my life because I spent years doing that. From 8 o'clock at night till 3 in the morning, I was gone to you. Question mark, yeah. I don't remember them. Yeah, yeah. And I think that you you say that in a lot of interviews and I think it's it's easy to hear like – that like you wouldn't be where you are right now if you were not sober, and then I just want to give a little bit of a like a, a shameless plug to sobriety. Like it really, I know that it seems difficult for people to to think about, but I, I swear to you, it's like not like those first two weeks where you don't like you don't know how to fu- function without alcohol and. Yeah. Like, at parties, like, what do you do? Like, imagine, like, having – I mean, this is probably someone who doesn't have alcoholism. Imagine going to a party and then being able to do stuff after and, like, have all those hours too. Like, Yeah. Yeah. It's – I mean – You don't need to turn off or mute things. Like, we can just be as people. Yeah. Um, your, your dad has a lot of advice about giving credit. And I wanted to make space for you to, like, give credit a little bit to anything that's, like, helped you in your sobriety. Yeah. I, I love – AA meetings um, because I, it's it's people that you would never have interacted with. Um, you know, you and I, like, I would have only hung out with media doc people, and I'm consistently surrounded by people from all walks of life that are doing different things, that are having different thoughts. Mm-hmm. It's like having this back pocket of friends who understand what you're going through, and you get to have brunch with them every Sunday, but, like, listen to other people's problems. Like, I think it's really easy for me to go into a room and just talk about my films, but like every hour on Sundays, I listen to somebody else. And I think every single one of us, and especially people listening to this, could like, we could listen to others more. Yeah. Erin um, Lee Carr, thank you so much for spending time with me. I love this. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Erin Lee Carr for talking about her HBO documentary about the case of Michelle Carter. Listeners, this Friday, I have the great honor to be your host for our weekly wrap. So please, for that episode, don't forget to share with us the very best thing that's happened to you all week. I want to hear babies. I want to hear people doing all stuff. I always cry. Please record yourself describing that and email the file to samsanders at npr.org. And you just might hear yourself in Friday's show. Until then, I am Julia Furlan. Thank you so much for listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts.